New Photic Realm announcement. Uh, submission windows for upcoming issues. Issue 10, the theme is justice. That's hard-boiled fiction with a supernatural twist. The deadline for that will be April 1st, 2020. Issue 11, the theme is kaiju. Giant monsters terrorizing civilization. Deadline will be October 1st, 2020 for those stories. Issue 12, the theme is lycanthropy, which is, of course, self-explanatory. Um, it can be any type of animorph with a bloody twist. Uh, so I guess that's werewolves and Jesus, giant, I don't know. What do people turn into? Seals? I've just got a little seal on my desk, so I thought of that. I don't know. You have to be more imaginative than I just was. Uh, but the deadline for lycanthropy, January 1st, 2021. Good luck to everyone submitting. We're talking to Jeans Pakutsa for the third and final time this time. Um, so I think I started to say goodbye at this point and then we started to talk about films that we've both seen and then that just sparked off another whole massive chat and um, yeah, made me think that we should start our own film podcast. So maybe we'll do that, don't know. Um, hope you continue to enjoy our chats as you enter part three. Um, if you're some sort of creative that wants to be on the show or if you want to tell me something about it, you can always do so using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, that's all my intro chat, so here is part three of my conversation with Jeans Bukutsa. I met a guy at the library who's going to act in this film that we're currently writing, um, or I'm currently writing, and um, he said, like, but he says it's so, it's so, can you just talk to me about it? Like, it's so ambiguous what you're trying to do. I'm, it seems so mysterious. I don't understand why. And I said, well, we've just, we had one meeting on it where I just asked people what kind of character they thought they could play well. Um, and then I, I've got some vague ideas for the characters and that's as far as I've gotten. But it was like, what's the message? What do you want to say? And I was like, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm going to find out, like, by writing it. That's the process, you know? When I, when I was hiring, and I think you might, and I might have even talked about this last time, when I was hiring my actors, and this was true in Scarapus, this was actually true in Field Day, this was true in, in Night Rain, this has been true, and one of the things I think I said I was proud of is the fact that I'm very proud of the performances my actors have given in these films. I'm very proud of them. They did it. They brought it forward. I can only give them enough that they trust me. That, that I can see a good performance, but it, they're doing the work. They're doing so much of the work. And one of the reasons that I hired the actors I hired was because I asked them things about themselves. I wanted to see that character inside of them. I, they, that is an actor's job. 
there's a there's a really good book called um, Six Acting Lessons, um, and it talks about this. It talks all about how you, the actor, builds the character. Yes, it's there in the writing, but the actor you can't just hand somebody something on a platter and say, here's what you need to do. Even the greatest director isn't going to do that. And you can see that you mentioned people who tend to be, you know, repeat working with each other. The, a great example of that in modern times is how many films have Scorsese and DiCaprio made together? So, so many. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, and, and more more than any other alliance, you know, that alliance has been there re repeatedly, repeatedly. and. One of the reasons I see that is because DiCaprio is an actor who will build the character from what he's reading, what he's looking at. But some screenwriters, what they'll say is, you know, in one, in one scene for one project I had, like Social Climber. Okay, how do you play a social climber? Well, you're going to have to do the research. You're going to have to find out what kind of a social climber is your character. Are they more uh, subversive about it? Are they more outward about it? How do you see yourself as that role? And the actor has to do that. That's part of the actor's job. And I guess some actors don't always realize they, you know, but if I tell you, if you show up on set as an actor and you're just waiting for people to tell you what to do, especially there, there are productions where literally you're treated like a lamp, stand there, stand there, stand there, yeah. okay, do it do it, just do it. That's the amount of direction they get. They don't get any more than that. So really your job is to show up prepared and to know your character. And if you're not sure questions are great, but nobody can give it to you, you really have to find it. Mm. You really have to find that character for yourself. And that's why that's what I look for in my actors is tell me about yourself before we go into the audition. Sh show me, show me something about yourself before we go into this audition is basically what I'm doing. Because if I can see the character in that person before they even start going into their lines, then I know, then I know I can see that I can see the character inside that person. I can see it coming out. I know they're going to be able to deliver it. I can see it. They've proven it to me. Whether they were aware of it or not, they've proven it to me, you know. And I, that's, you got to have that. You got to have that. Because you cannot, you cannot teach somebody to act. You can just give them tools so they can learn to act. Mm. I've, not, I've never seen it done any other way. Even the greatest acting coaches, I worked with Alan Langdon from Circle in the Square. And he's coached people like Viola Davis and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, some of the great actors of our time, and he will say the exact same thing. I can give you tools, but I can't teach you to act. Yeah. I can't teach you to be a better actor. That's yeah. the work you need to do. Just like no one, think about it, what that lady said to you, can anyone teach you to be a better writer? They can influence you. They can show you certain tools. They can inspire you. But can they teach you to be a better writer? You you become a writer and uh, and you evolve as a writer by doing well anyone who knows me knows i cannot be taught or told anything <laughs> so it's <laughs> probably why i went into the arts i wonder if that's me too <laughs> we're incorrigible <laughs> in the best possible way in the best possible way it because... got me this far so <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
yeah, for and I always say this about myself. It's like, well, for better or for worse, this is what I'm doing. At the end of the day, that's the other interesting thing is people can, people can criticize, they can praise, they can say whatever they want to say either way. But you do what you do, and then you go forward and you hope I'm growing, I'm evolving, I'm learning. Uh, you know, I go from go from here to here, and now I want to do this, and 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 hopefully I'll have that opportunity to do that and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know? Well, no, and and it's not something you can feel happening either. You just have to look back and go, oh, that was the best I could do then, because look at what I can do now. But you you don't you feel exactly the same. So you and know. even you you you're not even the same person. It's like Heraclitus. Nobody steps through the same river twice. It's mm. like when you look back on stuff and you realize, well, wow, actually, I can see how I wrote that. That's kind of who, that's who I was then. And that's the way I was thinking then. And, oh, yeah, there's still a lot of that does apply. But then I'm over here now. And so in a sense, you're kind of seeing your own evolution through it, your own personal experiences. And that's, I think, one of the challenging things for me, because, of course, I know people who are like a certain person I'm thinking of in particular, who's like, I want to keep my private life private. And I'm like, okay, this is where we are diametrically opposites because when you're a writer and you write what you know, you pretty much are writing about things of yourself and you're exposing. And actually, in a sense, as an actor, you know, that's one of the things that Elia Kazan used to say, you know, be public, be, be private in public, be private in public. To be a great actor, you've got to be private and public. And so this idea that, okay, there's certain things I should or shouldn't say. Well, and I understand, you know, this person has a right to their own privacy, but boy, my fabric is the opposite. I'll come right out and say, like, I'll blurt out something, some personal idea or something. Someone said, well, but haven't you heard of private thoughts? I'm like, I've heard of those. <laughs> I generally don't have them. It's like, I just, I just for me, it's just easier to be more transparent yeah. and out there and just, just open about things. Well, covering the, up so much energy, you know, uh, how does, um, women are sluts end? Oh, that, uh, that's a good example, isn't it? Yeah, no, that isn't. Yeah. I, you mean, yeah. The, you mean like the last stanza or the very last line or the last yeah. stanza, I think it's, yeah. The last stanza is I'm, I'm loud. I vote. Can I, can I swear? Or can I use yeah, of course it? you can. I'm, yeah. loud, I vote. I'm loud, I vote. I'm a mother and a fucker and a loud motherfucking cocksucker. I have bad language. And a career <laughs> I've created for myself. I get laid on a regular basis. I perform my poetry in slams worldwide. I'm a poet and a slammer and a skinny little slut. I'm proud to be a woman from the depths of my gut. Men succeed where women are sluts, so score this motherfucker. That's the last thing. I don't believe you remember it. That's really impressive. <laughs> and so, you know, that is definitely just, this is me. This is me. This is for better or for worse. You may like it, you may not like it, but this is the way it is. And that is a big part of what spoken word and poetry and performance poetry in particular is about and performance art is about is it's all about revealing yourself, about showing yourself, about being like my, I did a show called Naked that was on uh, VHS and, and CD when I first was touring. Uh, and it still is, is out there, I know, floating around. Um, and because uh, it was produced by, by someone, uh, Dan, Dan Wilson uh, and his company. And, um, and Naked was, my dad was like, are you doing some kind of Gypsy Rose Lee thing? <laughs> like, well, not really. It's more about being very open 
and and not really having anything between you and the audience and just being completely forthwith and transparent. And I just, for me, that's a liberation. It's a liberation to be able to just be yourself. Whatever, however people want to value judge that there's a power in being able to just be yourself, even if someone wants to criticize it. What's great about that is, heck, you guys can criticize this if you want to, or you can praise it if you want to, but I'm just being me. This is me. For better, for worse, you like it, you don't, whatever it is, this is me. It's so freeing to not be bound by these, you know, feeling like you've got to conceal things and wear masks and keep secrets and all that's exhausting to maintain that too. It is just so liberating and so like, I don't know any other word, freeing, liberating to just be able to be who you are. Mm. Um, and so, and so, you know, anytime someone's like, Oh yeah, I don't, you know, I don't want to reveal this or that. And I'm like, Oh, Oh no. <laughs> like, as I'm all about the reveal, <laughs> I love the reveal. And you can see that too in my work. You see that in the scarapist, what's really real, what's hidden, but it comes out. Same with night rain, what's real, what's hidden, what's an image, what comes out. And then you can also see why like movies like LA Confidential that are all about what is behind the facade, what is behind this image that someone is projecting, what's the real what's the what's the true reality what's really there um and coming from that world and so and so i uh especially that's why i love those last like you know maybe 10 15 minutes of night rain where everything's getting revealed about what's really there and who is really who and what and i think that's also the part that some people found extremely confusing and ironically, in the director's cut, it's not even that easy to understand because you don't have some of the things you have in the in the in the, what we call the festival cut, which you would have seen Leo on the uh, CYA uh, platform um, or the CIA platform. Um, it, it it I I tried to actually in that version make it more obvious what what it actually unfolded uh, with intercuts and things like that. In the original version, there aren't even intercuts. It's just, this is it. So I just kind of feel like um, no matter what you do, you may try to you may try to communicate with your audience, but I think at the end, there are going to be people who, who really are oriented to it, people who aren't. That's true in film. That's true in writing. That's even true in performances. More so now that there are so many people in the world and so many ways that people can see it from so many different places. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like, wow, I really did come to a place where it was like, I've done what I can on this movie. I'm crying uncle. It's ready to go out. So First Focus International, our sales representatives are out there shopping it now. And hopefully someone will buy it and it will become more readily available. I would still love to see it in a theater because John Neff, our sound editor, who also did all the sound editing for like Mulholland Drive and Straits for all this beautiful David. I mean, he created that sound. David Lynch, I, I, when I went to John's studio, it was almost more like a museum. Some people call it the museum. And he has like a photo of, of David, you know, to the man, you know, he used to call him the man. He was like literally like the person who helped create that famous Lynchian sound. And when I heard it in his system, 
which was actually a seven point up to a 7.1 system, a theatrical level system. I was just like, the things that you can't grasp from watching it online. You know, he was, he, his background is he was born for things to be seen and heard in a big screen system, in a, th in a theater, in cinema. And you can absolutely tell when you hear it, you know, like through his system, you can absolutely tell that you're just like, oh, wow, yeah, I get it. You know, it's like that enveloping, that enveloping sound is just like, oh, oh, I feel it. I feel, you feel it. You're just like, it's on my skin. It's on my skin. It's here. And it's just so cool. And so I would really love, I, I hope for the opportunity that people can see it in the way it was really meant to be presented that way. Because mm -hmm. it really, it, it comes, it, it, it comes alive and it takes on a flesh that it doesn't quite have through a computer, mm. you know? Um, I really want to make sure that we talk about this. You mentioned very briefly at the end something about a Canadian lawsuit. Tommy was all, was that the same thing? Uh, no, it's not related. It's actually um, a group of uh, Canadians who work at various um, different professions decided uh, that they wanted to make a movie about, uh, about the making of the room. So effectively, they decided they wanted to make a making of movie about somebody else's movie. Mm -hmm. But they felt uh, that they wanted to make it, I guess, the way they wanted to make it. They also didn't want to have to pay for the licensing of the material. And this was this is actually the point of contention. It's kind of been marketed like the movie that Tommy Wazo doesn't want you to see kind of thing. That's mm -hmm. all just kind of sensationalism. The reality is... His big contention is, if they want to use my material, they should be paying for it. And I actually uphold that in any situation, even whether it's fair dealing or fair use or not. In this case, I think the fair dealing thing is, it's becoming more and more questionable as we dig into the information. And in my opinion, it's really not, especially when you're using very iconic material about the subject of the movie. Um, and you can't make the movie without it which they've admitted that yeah. lends itself. It's not really fair use for a dealing. That said, I think to honor the artist whom you are, you know, uh, addressing whom you are making this movie about, I think it makes sense to pay them for their material. And you're talking about several hundred dollars, far less than what the license normally costs for the material. And it just seems to me that, this is an example where it's almost to me dangerous to artists and people in the industry where if someone can just come along and say whatever they want to say about you and use your material, especially in something that you find to be very negative about you, you know, it's like the thought that someone can just like, could just come along and take your work and use it any way they want to kind of like what one of our um, expert witnesses said, Cynthia Sharp. Um, he's a documentarian and he said, I'm actually on the blacklist. I can't go to China because of all the work I've done for Tibetan monks and nuns. He's done a lot of documentary work, um, uh, a lot of, um, a work exposing the, 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 I hate to say it, but well, I don't hate to say it. The, the truth is the, um, the, the very, the, the heinous behavior of the Chinese government towards Tibetans, particularly the monks and nuns. And uh, he said, I, for example, would hate to see that work that I've made uh, used to promote the Chinese government, for example. 
And I said, that's true. I mean, I do believe an artist has, an artist carries certain rights. An artist carries certain rights to see their work uh, um, reflected in a manner they'd like to see it won. And especially, I think that I feel, I believe in the artist's right to commerce. If someone wants to use your material, what else do you have but your creative property? And I guess the attitude is, well, do something else. Artists don't need to make a living. You're just an artist. That is exactly the attitude that has caused artists to starve and suffer over the many, many millennia of human mm -hmm. history. If artists, and this has always been my platform for myself and my company, it's like I built it on the basis of artists making a living with their art, doing what they love to do, not having to do something else to be an artist, that being an artist is enough in itself. And so when I see somebody wanting to take art, because whether, see, this is the, also the interesting thing. It was Stanislavski who said, and I testified to this, there is no good, there is no bad. There's true and not true. I agree with that. I don't like to put a value judgment on good or bad where art is concerned. And in fact, I'd even go so far as to say, if it's truly bad, it probably isn't art anyway. <laughs> so if it's art, you don't make a value judgment. It's just, does it speak to you? Is it truthful? That's what we're looking at. That, so that being said, so that being said, I don't really look at a, at a movie like The Room about it's good or bad. It is innovative. It is original. It is this person's life that they're building on. And that being the case, should people be able to just take it, use it as they want to in any way they want to without paying for it? Well, for me, the answer is no, no, especially if it's not respectful. So, so I met Tommy. And I just started out, no good deed goes unpunished. I just kind of started out just, you know, consulting because I've done this before, consulted for people, philosophy, being a philosopher for eight years. Uh, I, I've also used to tutor law students. Um, and so um, in small circles. And so I just kind of started helping in certain aspects. And pretty soon I became like the lead consultant in the case after I've been with it now for over two years or is it two years next month? It's about two years next month. And, um, and I, I, I basically, I'm, I served as an expert witness. I consulted on the case. I, I, I don't know how this happened. I, I'm now Tommy was, was a conciliary. I'm the Robert Duvall to his Marlon Brando uh, <laughs> from the Godfather or something. But I, 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 I wouldn't do it if I didn't believe in the cause of it, which ultimately says, fine, you want to be what you call a content creator. And there is a difference between content creating and artistry. There's a difference. If you want to content create, fine and good, but respect the artist, pay the artist, <laughs> and show your respect by paying the artist. And certainly, you know, don't use people to get what I think I perceive as your own kind of fame and fortune. Because I, I think that's, un I think it's unseemly, really, to do that. And it's kind of, in a way, it's cheating. Because we filmmakers, we have to pay our dues. There's, there's this, this idea of a fast climb, you know, it, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Uh, we were talking about Sam Mendes and Alan Ball and the kind of experience they had before they made American Beauty. I mean, 
the makers of Blair Witch Project, they were working with two very experienced producers. Both of the directors had had a lot of experience with producing music and sound before they directed, before they made this film. So, I mean, it can look like, wow, where did that person come from? In reality, that's not the way it works. Mm. You have to put the work in and you have to pay your dues. And this idea that you can get, make like a quick rise, a, 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 a quick fix or a quick start or stir and mix and boom, uh, there it is. And I'm just going to make a million dollars on my first film. That's a common misconception with a lot of filmmakers. I'm going to make my first film and be a millionaire. What's scary is when you have people with that mentality that is so common, you know, the first time filmmaker-itis, but they take it to another level where they actually feel like they're entitled to that because they've latched onto someone who's famous and they've latched onto a project that's, that's celebrated and successful in its, in its, in its own unique way. Mm. So I just, yeah, I, I can't, uh, I can't stand by and watch that simply because it goes against what I know and it goes against what is reasonable for really any artist. So it's going to have a pretty big impact in the end. It'll be interesting to see where it goes from here because it's not over. Uh, there were there were some premature celebrations on on a certain end, but it's not over yet. It's still going. Um, and I've noticed that actually there are quite a lot of industry people who have um, contacted me about it because my name was in a, a an article in the Daily Beast. I was mentioned as one of the primary advocates for the case. And so I had a couple of people contact me in the industry and they were like, God, how could they ever think that this would work? Or why would they ever do this? Or they took the object of their like fandom and then now they're trying to take all his money or, you know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't think this is going to work out. It's not going to, it's not going to go well either way. It's just, so uh, we're still working. And that means that on a regular basis, you know, my, my phone will ring and Hello, how are you? What, how you doing? And occasionally, you know, Greg and I go back and forth on it too. But I think, I think the overall attitude in the industry is this is not good for the industry. It doesn't, it doesn't set a good precedent or standard mm. to try to get famous yourself, to try to get their money, to go to, to make a career for yourself. It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not the, that's not the way that's actually not really the way the industry was built. Contrary to what some people believe, that's really not the way the industry was built. And most people, most people, an overwhelming majority of people have paid their dues in this business to get where they are, uh, to be where they are, whatever the level. And so it's not really looked upon positively, <laughs> let's mm -hmm. put it that. So it will, one way or another, it, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting the way it all turns out. I, there are some things I obviously can't say because, and won't say I probably could, but I think this notion of doing it for the publicity and all of that is exactly what I'm, I've been against. And, um, you know, that's coming from one end, but not the other. Tommy's been very, actually people, you know, it's funny, people want to portray him like he's just, you know, eccentric and crazy. And, but the reality is he's actually, um, a pretty clear thinking in many ways. He's very clear thinking and he's pretty shrewd. He, he's not stupid. He definitely knows what's going on. Very intelligent person, uh, very thoughtful. He's, he's very perceptive um, about things. 
you know, he'll like every once in a while, I'll be like, well, if I'm not doing that right, maybe I'm not the right person. He's like, no, no, sweetie, that very manipulative, what you just say. And I'm like, he caught me. I'm like, oh my God, he caught me. You know, <laughs> so like, oops. I'm like, no, you're right. Okay, all right. Well, let's keep going forward then. And um, and so, and you don't, you know, you his business acumen and his marketing capabilities and everything else, he's he's really very, he's really quite bright and he has a very good point in this situation. So I think he's been kind of painted, portrayed as being unreasonable and being crazy and eccentric and all this stuff. But the reality is. He's never really, he's been very clear from the very beginning about how he sees this. And I can see his point of view, definitely. Why should I, why should someone just be able to take my work and and, and not even, you know, not pay for it and not be respectful about it? So I think any artist would feel a similar way and has, you know, and then you see these examples of people like the Mozarts, the Van Goghs, the, you know, the, um, the Modigliani's who basically died in squalor. And now people are making money from them, you know, mm. but like, why should that be? Why should that have to be an artist's existence? You know, is that fair to the artist? No, it's fair to the people who make money from it, <laughs> but it's not fair to the artist. And so I just, I can't really, I can't really support that kind of framework mind that says that that's okay because you know you're just doing something you've probably heard this before why should you worry about getting paid you're doing what you love <laughs> well do you love aspects of what you're doing and you're getting paid i don't see why i you know well that's its own reward well it is its own reward but that doesn't mean a monetary reward is unheard of i'd like to make i'd like to live like anybody else i'd like to not be in a tent right now i'd like to be able to enjoy food and be with friends and yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame in that. So yeah, it's been an interesting journey. That's for sure. I think what I, you know, it's funny because um, the moments that have been some of the best moments have been the behind the scenes moments. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure if I, <laughs> but I do remember, I will say, I will, I will describe one scenario uh, where uh, Tommy arrived um, in Canada for the litigation and um <laughs> he was in the lobby of the or in the uh, hallway of the hotel outside my room uh letting me know that he had arrived and oh let's go down and get breakfast and so forth i'll get this person we'll go down so he's at the elevators and he, he yells out he goes he goes yankees are here <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like in in his best you know eastern european accent <laughs> and i was like <laughs> Yankees are here. And I was like, <laughs> right on, man. <laughs> Yeehaw. <laughs> it was like, that was a classic Tommy moment that I witnessed and no one else was there. So I was saying to myself, there, and the experience is like riddled with these moments that are, were not, that were behind the scenes that, you know, the stories are just going to be when the, when it all comes out are just going to be freaking hilarious. Well, so I, I've I've saved all those in my I've I've got them in a special memory box for myself. It sounds like you should be making your own documentary about him, <laughs> like doing this lawsuit with his permission and we respectfully and I would pay for the material. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if it ever came to that, and yeah. I know. If I've ever mentioned, maybe I should write a book. And he's like, sweetie, 
no, not right now. <laughs> it's like, he's just like, sweetie, sweetie, I'm a very private person. And I'm like, I know, I know. Well, I'll be very careful. Very careful. And he is um, right to that. It is, it is an unfortunate reality that public people, sometimes people think that someone, because someone's life is public, they're public property. And, you know, that's the other thing. There was, there was a very famous lawsuit that I've mentioned in this case. Uh, it was Confidential Magazine. Did you ever hear about Confidential Magazine? Confidential Magazine was really the most, it wasn't the only, but it was like the most successful uh, scandal mag, scandal rags, they used to call them. Uh, in the beginnings, of the entertainment industry, you saw like Photoplay would usually protect, the studios would protect their actors, which, you know, their stars they perceived as property. But by the 50s, you had a public that was kind of hungry for a little more dirt. And sometimes what they would say, you know, truth, or, you know, it's kind of like LA Confidential, the truth is out there and I'm gonna do the Danny DeVito character, hush, hush, you know, hush, hush. Some of it was true, some of it wasn't. Uh, some of it was very embellished, some of it was exaggerated, some wasn't. So, but eventually in 1959, Confidential Magazine was successfully sued and went bankrupt as a result. There were a number of actors who said, I'm sick of you guys standing on our fences, standing on our walls, going into our backyards, sneaking into our houses or whatever, uh, and, and digging up dirt. One of the most famous, uh, two of the most famous people who were, uh, I mean, there was Marilyn Monroe and and uh, uh, Norman Mailer, but uh, one relationship that also didn't survive, the Ava Gardner-Frank Sinatra relationship. They were really hounded by a lot of these scandal regs. And there was a scandal. There was a scandal. Ava Gardner started dating Frank Sinatra before he was divorced. And so there would be mail, tons of mail instead of fan mail coming to the studio. And it would read, dear, uh, dear, uh, bitch Jezebel Gardner and things like this, right? You know, breaking up this these childhood sweethearts or whatever. And the scandal rags kind of exploited a lot of that, but they went down because people realized, you know, people do, even public people have a certain right of privacy, you know? And so I've brought that up uh, in this matter. It's like, look, even, even here in the United States, we've had lawsuits where, you know, publications went down for things like this. You don't, you don't dig into someone's private world. You don't go skulking around cemeteries of their relatives looking mm. for, I mean, it's, it's just, there's something so tawdry about it. It's like, you know, that's sacred ground <laughs> and you're trying to dig up as much dirt on a person as you can. And for what purpose? What, what, because you want to make a name for yourself. I don't know. It's just, there's something about it that just doesn't sit right with me. And so that's kind of what I wanted to also say is that in addition to a right of commerce, I think an artist has a right of privacy. You know, you're, you're, you're so good at like, you, you're just like this, you're like these two doors that just open and it's like the floodgates. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I feel so comfortable talking with you that before I know it, all this time has passed, but I appreciate it so much because that, I guess that is your openness. You, you, from the start, you and I just seem to like click that way where we could yeah. just. Yeah, I think it's like, yeah, it's definitely, it's that vibe. And like, you know, it's like completely non-judgmental and I'm here to listen to like anything you have to say because I'm curious about it. And I just like want to know, and I would be like respectful about it in the edit if there was anything about it you didn't want me to say. So it's like, let's yeah. just have an open chat. And also it's just like, 
a nice reminder to both of us, I think, that like if you are one of these open-hearted artist people, keep your heart open. Keep it as wide open as you can. Like, don't let anyone make you close it. Yeah, even, even, because you know what, I, I came, at a certain point, I came to a conclusion, like we were talking about, you know, the, you know, there are the haters out there or whatever, but you know what you don't want to do, it's kind of like, the way I think of it is, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna submit to, uh, to terrorism. You know, it's like, if you want to try to scare me or hurt me in some way, I mean, I just, I have to be who I am. I've got, I've got this lifetime to be who I am. I can't let somebody else make decisions about what I'll say or what I do. I want, I don't want to start censoring myself. Oh, oh, maybe what if they think this or that? No, that, that just gives it too much power then, you know, I think the best thing, the best response to all of it is just, it's like Matt Sedillo, a poet I know who just, he's a, a book that came out, uh, Mowing Leaves of Grass, um, part of my Criterion Collective, also David Romero, my name is David Romero, or my name is, yeah, my name is David Romero. They both um, have books that have come out and they've talked about, particularly Matt, how, you know, because he does a lot of political activism too. And he's, you know, he's suffered a lot of people kind of coming at him and stuff. And, and I just say, yep, keep going. <laughs> yep, keep going. Yep. And keep going because people are going to do and say what they're going to do and say, you're like, you were saying, what can you do? You know, you're not going to change it. You got to keep doing what you're doing. You're going to run into people in your own film club. Sadly, there will be some people there who are just there to feel like they know more than somebody else. That does happen. Mm. And then the, my favorite people are the ones who are, you're right, who are like the open books who are like, okay, I just don't really know anything. What can I learn? You know, the, it's, it is interesting. There's, um, there's a book. I don't know if you've read it, but I think you would just love it. It's by Robert Anton Wilson. A former okay. Robert Anton Wilson, a former editor of Playboy magazine, he wrote a wonderful book that touches on some of this called Schrodinger's Cat. Have you okay. read Schrodinger's Cat? I haven't read the book. I, I'm aware of the cat, but yeah, not yeah. read the book. Yeah, yeah, and it touches. So it's it's based on the the cat. It's based on the principle of Schrodinger's cat. And does the cat press the button or not press the button? The book, though, really also touches on things like. Um, what is real mastery and who are the masters and what does this mean? So I really, I think you would really love this book. It's real. I've recommended it to a few people and they've all been like, Oh my God, it really, it's, it's a really, it's actually a really remarkable text. And it, I think that it could be the handbook for your film club. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll make sure and pick it up. I'll right, let you know. First thing is let's throw down Schrader's cat. <laughs> and the ones who like Schrader's cat, okay, you know they're going to be cool. That's your test. And if nice. they don't like Schrader's cat, that's a sign. Maybe they're too egotistical. <laughs> Good one. I'll, I'll definitely make sure and look it up. Oh, I can't wait. I want to hear what you think when you've started reading it even. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Because uh, because now that I'm thinking about it, so much of what we've talked about is like addressed in nice. the nice. especially especially how um, ego can mask mask itself as mastery, but Ooh. the real but the real mastery is 
is um, is in the 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 mystery in the unknowing in the it really does touch on that in a Brilliant. big way. Brilliant. Quantum, yeah. quantum physics and how that plays a role and art and how that plays a role. And it really is a very brilliant. He also wrote that book, The, the Illuminati, which kind of pokes fun, but emphasizes like, you know. Oh yeah, is it the, the Illuminatus trilogy? Is that it? Yes, yes, I've heard yes, of that, yes, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Same, same author. And Schrodinger's Cat is the less known one, but it's actually my favorite. And I think, Anytime you're dealing with groups of people as Schrodinger's cancer again, <laughs> especially in creative and intellectual pursuits. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you're going to love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I never need too much help to buy more books on Amazon. So that's what I'm going to do right now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. I love it. Oh, it's so good to see you again. Part two. Part two. Part two. This is part two of part. Five, six, seven, eight, who knows? I'm in sure 50. we'll be in touch again. <laughs> I do not tire of talking with you, Leo. <laughs> it's always great. It's always so insightful, so much fun. Um, and one of my listeners said um, that you had her sister's laugh and she loved to hear it. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Really? I thought that was like the nicest feedback I'd heard on a that podcast episode ever. Beautiful. That makes me yeah. happy. Because wow, because I'm that means that she feels like um like a comfortability, like an openness about it. That yeah. yeah, that's that's so cool. Oh, I love that. Thank you for that. That made my day. <laughs> my <laughs> yeah, because you always wonder. You're like, well, is somebody listening? If they are listening, are they feeling it? You know, are they relating to it? Yeah, yeah, they are. We don't just say what we say for ourselves. We are wanting to share something that brings us all closer to the, what we're what we're moving towards. You know what we're what we're hoping for, and whatever form that takes. And at the end of the day, I mean, especially for the true artist, the real ascent is it's the ascent of the soul, isn't it? It really is. It's not just. I mean, if we were just doing it for like fame or money or whatever it's like that wouldn't be enough it's like that wouldn't even be anywhere near anything it's mm -hmm. like it has to do with how we're transforming as people yeah because hope that by creating the art you're, you're it's like what did someone someone once quoted a poet to me uh and he said um he said life creates the art is it life creates the art does art create the life then in exchange? I'll get the quote because it's a beautiful quote. It's something basically that means you don't control the art by putting something onto it. You're actually letting it be born. Mm -hmm. Like life is lived. You're allowing it to come forward from you. Yeah. And that's how you see the real transformation take place. So again, the ones who are taking it or hating it or criticizing it they're kind of cheating themselves in a sense because they're cheating themselves out of that evolution of their own soul that only art can can give you that way by doing it mm. so I've, I've watched you too i've watched like i've well, i've looked at your work and i've watched how it's evolved and it is really interesting to watch it evolve because i think if there's one thing that comes to mind when I see it for you, Leo, is that 
you have a very interesting relationship with both yourself and your perceived audience and your art seems to be and your work seems to be moving towards that so that you are are uh more enjoined with with the you the world that you're part of as a result oh yeah uh, yeah like you're it's almost like if you imagine you imagine the pebble in the water and then the rings keep going outward. So if like, if you're the pebble going into water, it starts out with just a single and then, but then it starts to spread and starts to spread and starts to spread. And I think that that is going in the right direction. I feel like anything that takes you out of singularity and isolation and draws you more and more into circles, I think that must be good, you oh, know? Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. It's exciting. You know, that's where your work is taking you. Imagine how much further it's just the, it's just even, you can't even imagine, you know, where it's, that's the beauty of it. So. Oh, yeah. look forward to finding out, having a great time as it evolves. Cool. Onwards. <laughs> the cloud of unknowing as the mystical text was known, the cloud of unknowing. It's the mystery. You know, it's the not knowing part that can be the best part because that's where really beautiful things can come from. You know, it's like this, the goddess chaos who Robert Ernst Wilson has talked about, you know, there's, there is an order in chaos, but it's not about seeing it. It's just about living it. It's about being with it and allowing yourself to go through it and because that's uh, oftentimes where great creations come from is that fantastic, fabulous mystery. Not this, you know, it's this or it's this, it's the falling. Whoa! <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> so way to go. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me just to be myself. That's one of the things I really love the best about our talks is that I just feel like I can be me. It's so great. Thank you for that. That's yeah. Well, it's like far from the last time, like I say. Can't, I'm so excited to see what happens with Night Rain and, and just all the oh, stuff that you're working on. Thank you. I'm so glad that you liked it, too. I mean, so like like I said, like I've gotten so many uh, variant opinions. Like, But th did the plot make sense to you by the time you got to the end? Did it make sense what was happening? Did you at any point? I understood it the whole time, though. Oh, awesome. Even before oh. the reveal. I, oh, thank you. It was fine. I think that, like, the the plot was very simple, but the layers, the plot seemed very straightforward, but there were many layers to consider. And I think that maybe maybe some viewers are getting distracted considering those layers while the story is unfolding. Oh. You know, I feel like if you watch it a second time, then then you can appreciate it better because there's you're not being hit with so much new information. So yeah. I definitely felt that. I was like, I, I understand where all this is going, but it's going like, there's so much for me to consider, but I can't consider it while I also have to watch these scenes. That's how I felt. You know, I think that this is what you're saying. You know why I love it? Because what you're saying reminds me of some of the things I've heard like John August and Craig Mazin say on script notes. It's like, when you think like a writer thinks and watch a movie, that's how you would watch a movie then. You'd mm -hmm. first experience the movie yeah. and then 
you take the stock and go back and think about the yeah because well if i was to explain it like the way it's revealed it's like okay your character has to play somebody who looks like elizabeth short and you genuinely as a person look like elizabeth short um what does it mean for sorry Oh, I was going to say, remember, remember the line when she she says that I'm the lead, and her executive producer Lou says, "Yes, honey, it was made for you. Trust me." See, there's. That's a there's very, I mean, that's such a that's a really Lynchian line as well, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. um, because what is it they say in Mulholland Drive? Like, she's the girl. That's the yeah, girl, and it's very. It's like. And you know, um, and you know the the uh, Angelo Baldelamente, his his composer who portrays one of the two brothers this is the girl right the guy, this is that's that's how, that those are the Weinstein brothers those are the Weinstein brothers oh. that's that's based on and yeah. it's not and it's not your movie anymore <laughs> that's what that's all based on the oh, okay because like when I was watching that I, like the questions you're asking are like what does it what does it mean for an actress to embody? like a real life person how does it mean what is it like for them to make a character what are they trying to show to an audience um when does it go too far what is it that an audience wants from watching a true crime film uh how is it to honor a legacy like you're asking all of these questions but at the same time there's a story going on and i have to watch that story and i can't ponder these questions at the same time that's what i felt when i was watching it that's probably, you're right, that might be what's, and there's nothing I can really do as a filmmaker unless I take layers away, but I don't really want to take the layers no, away. Just, you know? just, I think if you watch it a second time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is bad. As a producer, I can say, oh, good, <laughs> watch it a second time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I think now that, see, that's what I was curious about too, because I'm like, boy, a couple of people have really said it's so confusing and other people are so clear about what's happening. And I guess it just has to do with the mindset, you know, like how do you, how do you move through it? Do you just watch it like what it is? And then you go back through like you were describing. And I think you're right because the only other way to do this is to remove layers, but I think removing layers is a mistake. I really, I wanted to, what I wanted to capture is a sense too, for this, for it really was kind of like for the family, I wanted to capture a sense of, if Elizabeth Short had survived, if she'd been able to actually age, my character, you know, there was there was a part of the director's cut that and I think this first, first version gets cut off where it's like, you know, I maybe I looked like her a few years ago and the director's about to make a snarky remark. So I'm like, <laughs> like, watch it, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. But it's like, where there's like, yeah, she's older, she's wiser, you know, she's 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 trying to solve her own murder that's really the core of like what you were saying that's the core of the plot she's older wiser trying to solve her own murder what would that look like what would it have looked like if she had been able to survive and how would she have thought about what happened to her and the way she was treated you know what uh, that's how you empathize really with the with the victim of the true crime that's how you empathize with her mm-hmm. um and at no time is my character really supposed to be the real Elizabeth Short per se, so much as she's supposed to be someone portraying her. Um, and yet she does, you're right, kind of take on the embodiment at a certain point where there's that moment where she's whispering, okay, this is about me, not you. This is about you, not me. Remember that moment, which mm. uh, I decided to, to layer that in because that's not only the way an actor prepares, but that's how Ava felt 
about Elizabeth Short is this is about you, not me. I want to let you speak now, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and tell the world your story and tell the world how you feel about it. This mm-hmm. is about this is not about me. This is not about anybody else. This is about you right now. And then you're also asking, like, what is it about her that meant she had to get murdered as well? Uh, is yeah. there a, was there a quality or was she in the wrong place or the wrong time? Um, That's an excellent question. Um, I would say in the case of Elizabeth Short, and if you, do you remember that scene that took place between the Ezra, the, the, the uh, director and Ava where they're taught, he says, I think she's making, I think he's making you be Elizabeth Short. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, of course. So one of the things that they're talking about is she, it's really true that she would, to borrow money, she would tell this story. She did really have a fiance who died, but of course so many women, and they mentioned that too, so many women had husbands or, or, or boyfriends who died in the war. And so it became her husband. And then it became, they had a son who died. You know, that was one of the ways she would borrow money from people. Now this person who's mentioned in Night Rain, uh, this, this, uh, this one suspect in particular, um, he has a son who died for real, for real. And if he's a doctor and if he did examine her, he probably knew she wasn't telling the truth. And that combined, I think it was a combination of things. I think it was where she was in her life. A lot of people say her life unraveled after her fiance died, that she, she was very traumatized from it. Uh, so you have one person suffering a trauma whose life is really in, not in very good shape and she's struggling. She has, there's poverty in her life. She's basically homeless at this point. And then you have someone else with a tragedy, a son who died, his beloved son, the only flesh and blood child that he had, who was really like his prince, his his most favored uh, son and only son, who died around the same time, by the way, who died on January 13th, or had a birthday, sorry, January 13th, which is around this time. And then, uh, and then he's suffering from what we would now call Alzheimer's. It wasn't called Alzheimer's now, or then. Uh, but for some people, and in his case, it was believed based on the type of, because they could look at the brain after he died and, and see that there was something not right, and, and it was actually causing shrinkage of the tissue in his brain. A lot of people were saying that his personality had changed dramatically. You know, he goes off and lives with his mistress. He leaves his family. She has a secret, apparently. It comes out, not in the movie, in our movie, but there's a secret she has about it. Well, it seems to me that it's just like with the Ava Boney, it kind of mirrors the Ava Boney Knuckles or investor situation where you have two people in, in a certain circumstance whose lives cross and it has a negative impact. You know, I think in this case, you had someone who knew the short family who was connected. We know this for a fact because we know that his adopted daughter signed the the marriage certificate of Elizabeth Short's sister was one of the witnesses, possibly a maid of honor. So we know that there were familial connections, which might've brought them together. But you have one person who's in a state of trauma. You have another person in a state of trauma and it produces just this very bad result. You know, so that's as, as much as we can know, obviously it's, this is another reason I wanted to be empathetic because it's pretty hard to solve a, a cold case that's been around for 74 years. 
it's entirely possible even the person responsible isn't alive anymore. It's probably probably not only very likely, if not you know, hundred percent true. But um, but if there was a solution, I just I chose I chose what I thought was the most plausible. I chose what I thought was the most plausible, and that was um, that was Larry. That's Larry Harnish's theory. I don't know anybody who has dug as deeply into that case as the former writer time or LA Times writer editor Larry Harnish, and he is actually the only person of, in the media whom the family will communicate with because he has approached it so with such sensitivity and empathy and respect where a lot of the time you get people who are just out to sensationalize it to maybe make a buck off of it. And he's not like that. And I really do think that his is probably the most plausible. So that's, I mean, that is a complexity because people are trying to keep track of who are these people and who are these suspects and what are they all about, you know? And so I, I admit that it's not a film that's just, it's not like a film that you can just kind of kick back and, you know, it does take a lot of, of thought, um, through it, but uh, but I spent about four or five years working on the script. Almost, I think it was almost just about four years, a little over four years. And I did a lot of research, and I read a lot of the FBI FBI files and the newspaper reports and things like that. And I just realized that of all the theories I'd heard, Larry's was definitely the most plausible to me of what could have happened. It it also he's the only one. Who has put forward a suspect? Who um, he's the only one who put forward a suspect where we can actually show that there really was a connection between the potential the, between the suspect and the victim. In a lot of these other scenarios, there's just no evidence that they even. It's like it's like that's mentioned in the movie where she talks about the George Hodel, the doctor George Hodel, who owns this house on Franklin Avenue, and there's just nothing that actually links them. There's nothing that 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 uh that connects them and uh and and in fact there's evidence to the contrary that they could have ever even connected with each other we assured uh um we made a feature film our club did um just like with uh, I, I can show it to you if you want actually um oh my gosh oh my gosh that's a huge accomplishment i didn't know i remember you saying something about you guys were going to work on a on a on something you were going to send to festivals and stuff yes that's yes so cool it's like um, it was like a uh, Zoom calls are like very popular now. So we did a Zoom call film about the end of the world. So we're like uh, conspiracy theorists discussing how we think the world is going to end. Oh, you have to be Schrodinger's cat. Oh my God, you're gonna love Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> yeah, I, I will do. For a reason. Oh my God. So you guys yeah. shot, edited it? Or are you editing it? I now? did. The, I did. No, I did the whole thing. Um, I filmed it from here because it was coronavirus so we couldn't meet so i had to just film people here just the, in the way that we're talking now and then piece it together like a, a film that's brilliant um, that's so brilliant i'd love for you to see it um but it, i showed it. it to people and some people were like mm, it's a bit long i was like it's 71 minutes that's like the shortest like a bit long like what are you talking about i think that to be a feature it has to be like a minimum of 69 minutes or something like that exactly like i could not i literally could not be that short you know what's funny it reminds me of in amadeus the line about too many notes when the emperor says to mozart he says too many he's like too many notes (laughs) 
I think that what happens sometimes is, because one person said to me, what film were you thinking of when you made Night Rain? I said, if there's one film, I said, because there are a lot of films noir. I said, I guess LA Confidential came to mind. Oh, I don't like that movie. Okay, well then you're probably not going to like mine. Wait till you hear this one. I didn't tell you this one. I was going to about the guy who left the club who'd studied film and everything. Oh, um, yeah. I was I was talking about um, indie filmmaking styles like Dogma '95 and things like that, right? Because I love yeah. that. Oh, and love Dogma. And, and we're going to film it like style like two hand cams and like running around the library secretly. That's our next big project. Um, but he said like, oh, he said I used to teach. Lars von Trier's Dogville, because I said, look at this, this is everything not to do in a film. I said after I gave this presentation, and I was like, okay, didn't that win, didn't that win the Palm d'Or or something? Isn't that like a very celebrated film? So, there are no rules, and there's a line there was a line in a in this tv show you might remember it or or it might be familiar colombo with peter falk and oh, yeah. there's an episode with uh vivian lee she plays like an aging star and she's kind of losing it and there's a line in there when colombo says well you know i love dance but i can't really do it what do you what do you recommend and one of the characters who is a dancer says become a critic <laughs> that it is really interesting um for someone to say i taught people what not to do about this is a highly celebrated award-winning film and lars von trier is another example of a person who when he does things he does not do them accidentally he does things very deliberately Mm. very deliberately he knows, and, and that comes across in the performances. I love Lars von Trier, by the way. I love the work of Lars von I Trier. recently rewatched them, um, Antichrist. Did oh, I, one? I watched segments because I heard people were like fainting. Very violent, yeah, towards it's the very, end. Well, and, then, and so I almost picked it for our Halloween movie. I picked The Uninvited instead because I wasn't even sure if our audiences were like ready to see it, but it is, it is part of the Criterion collection. Antichrist mm. is. I'm not and going to recommend it in case it's too violent for you. But well, yeah. I, I, I watched a movie called The Snowtown Murders about John Bunting. The that, Australian one you told me about. That is a deeply, deeply, in fact, I was watching that um, with my co-director because we were talking about that relative to the scarifist. We wanted her to have that sort of look that isn't is slightly off when someone keeps like staring at you like this, even when you're doing whatever, like there's something off about it mm-hmm. that was captured in that movie, the way he looks at the kid a lot of the time. I don't know if you saw it, but it is really violent and disturbing. And if I, I did watch... That, um shattered glass after you mentioned it oh yeah yeah i did what did you think what did you think so good like that performance was incredible i i was like is he is he about to murder one of them or something towards the end so disturbing and you and you're supposed to get that sense because people who are that like who are yeah they can snap yeah 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 like and and that's what it's basically that's what has that's that's what gives given him a sense of identity 
you know, you even do get the sense. And I think Chuck Lane, the real life Chuck Lane kind of describes how he was really actually was kind of scared, didn't know what this guy was going to do once he exposed it, you know? Oh, yeah, you don't do it to their face. Like, no, no, oh, no. Oh, not, no. you know, without other people, without some kind of protection around. Yeah, he's the kind of person who might, he might've been one of these snapped people. No, I thought that was very well done. And it was especially to the credit of the director, writer, Billy Ray, who also did Flight Plan. He did a great oh, job. Flight Plan is so Yeah, good. yeah. He's very content. Mm. What's going on underneath? What's happening underneath? And I have to say, Peter Skarsgård and Hayden Christensen, oh, their performances, right? I mean, out of the park. So uh, those two, those two for me were the strongest, clearly the strongest performances. I liked, I liked, um, oh God, what's his name now? I'm trying to remember who, who works for the, for the Forbes.com. Uh, Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn. He was yeah. good for the brief time that he was present. He was, when he was like, this guy is toast, you know, when he's like uncovering all this stuff. And that was really real. That was a really big deal that, you know, a .com uh, publication, which is considered to be lesser, this was, you know, New Republic, considered to be one of the pr great print publications. And it's just so interesting to watch how that all unravels and how it's discovered that he's fabricating. And even after, uh, even after the discovery, when Chuck Lane, when Peter Skarsgård, I love the moment, that is, that is one of my favorite moments for Peter Skarsgård, is there's two actually when they're in the car and he's like, he's like, he was like, Steve, could you just, could you just tell me the truth? Could you do that? You know, that moment, like he was like, could you just, cause he's seeing it. He's like, I can't believe it. He's like almost in shock, you know, that his, that his associate, that it's to this degree that it goes this deep, you know, and he starts looking through all the other, you know, wondering what's true, what's not true. And then when he comes, when he's taking his publications down from the wall and then, you know, Hayden Christensen and Stephen Glass comes back, he's like, I want, could you just take me to the airport? I really don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, you know, Steve, could you just stop pitching? Stop pitching. You know, it was like that, those performances were so subtly beautiful to me. Like it just, that, that on both of those actors, I was like, these actors are exceptional that they could okay. pull I feel like you and I need to start our own film podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Because these, these, I mean, really, when you just, I think that it's just, I'm, I just get chills when I see, it's recognizing those moments. You have to, I think, I can't, I, and this is why I have confidence in your, pro, your, your projects and in my projects, because you don't notice these things if there's not something in you that recognizes great work, oh, you know? Um, do you know what I watched recently that I'd never seen before? Mommy Dearest? Oh, 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 okay. What do you think of it? Okay, to me, to me, if only the director had like paid attention to Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway trusted her director sufficient to just go over the top with her performance. Mm. I think what happened and why it became so camp was because the director not only permitted that without a lot of masking, but then used a lot of those performances. So it is not a subtle film. <laughs> we can yeah. say 
It is not a subtle film. But I do think, I do think in the midst of all of that, I think that I somehow got a sense, a mood, a tone, somewhere through all of that. I think, I think most of the performances were way overboard, way mm. overboard. And yet, somehow, I actually do enjoy maybe isn't the right word, but I feel like I'm getting a sense of what was intended, which is you're in the middle of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think here's what happened. I think this was what was going through the filmmaker's mind. I think they were thinking Hollywood is over the top in itself. You have this person whose personality and image is so over the top, you know, her behavior goes over the top. Uh, a lot of, I think over the top was a big theme here, over the top. A lot of it went over the top. Um, I want to say, I understand what, I think I have an understanding of what was in the head of the person, which is if we're going to get behind the images, we have to go so overboard to see this sort of larger than life persona that was Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford wasn't really a person per se. She was a person. Mm-hmm. She was well, a star, you know? And yet, and yet, it, it was, there were painful moments to watch. I mean, I liked that they wanted to show that she wanted to be this very rigorous professional. I just never really, I never really felt like I was, you know, we were talking earlier about Elia Kazan saying, be private in public. I always felt like we were still watching a movie. I never felt like I really got to grasp the real mm-hmm. private experience because the performances were so big. Yeah. You know what the I mean? The thing is, like, I... How, did you, I, how yeah. did you feel about it? I mean, the sets were gorgeous, and the, the wardrobe was gorgeous. Yeah. And clearly, I well, mean... The, the reason... The reason I wanted to see it is because my sister recommended a documentary about showgirls, which I'd never seen. Which was um, because, yeah. So it was like they were talking about why things become camp and over the top and, and enjoyed for that. And I was like, oh, like I love that because I love John Waters films, right? So I was like, I should really be <laughs> over the top. Yeah. So I was like, I love that. Like, I should be exploring what inspired that or what it is that people love about that because I, I love it too. So I thought I'll watch all the camp classics and they recommended Mommy Dearest. So then that's why I watched it. Um, and I just felt like, no, the subject matter was too serious and it was a biopic, so I couldn't laugh at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even though it, it was... was real, the beautiful, yeah. the hair cutting off her face. Oh, God. It was, was just horrible. But it was... it. It felt like, first of all, like bad screenplay, bad yeah. adaptation from yeah. from a book that like may be true, but you know the the story of that film is only purpose is to make you feel very bad about what happened to this woman, which is not a very compelling story, and so it's just like scene after scene of horrible thing that happens to her. Yeah. So yeah. I and I think that why people laugh at it is because they're going like, how dare you just present us with this misery and no moral we're going to mock it for the rest of existence. Yeah. I, I kind of, I find that like a positive message about humanity is like, we actually don't accept endless misery with no message. We don't see the point in that. We find that hilarious that you're going to present that to us. So I love that people mock it for that. But 
I cannot join them in their mockery because it did happen. And um, it's people are trying to very seriously portray that to you. And then I started to read reviews about people who've had mothers like that. And they're like, if you can laugh about this, count yourself very lucky. They're actually closer, like nail on the head in a way that you don't understand. And you're very lucky that you don't understand it as well. So I think it's like, I'm just fascinated by it, but it didn't work for me at all. I just kind of felt repelled by the endless misery of it, personally. I was just going to say, you know, I, it's good that you bring this up because here's something that occurs to me. Um, one of the reasons I think that Frank McCourt and the movie wasn't for the same reason, the adaptation from the novel, the novel Angela's Ashes, or I should say the memoir, Angela's mm-hmm. Ashes, is so charming. And it's got these moments of humor in the midst yeah. of this terribly desolate, you know, impoverished depression era Ireland. But the movie just is like depression after depression after depression. It didn't succeed. And in a similar way, I think you're right. I think what went wrong was even in the moments that are supposed to be celebrated, you know, where she's like, ah, I shall name you Christina. You know, it's like, it's almost like you, it's like, wait a minute. We don't even get a realistic depiction of what, maybe she might have felt at some point, which is some kind of motherhood. Some, again, like I never get the private and the public. I never got to see the real Joan Crawford. She still seems to be, even in her own home, even if there aren't seemingly people around, she's still playing this role. And it just feel authentic to me. It always felt like she was putting on something. And you're right, it's hard to laugh when you know it's based on real life abuse. Mm-hmm. And there's no, like, even in the book, because I read the book and then saw the movie. And in the book, there are these moments where they're, like, in Carmel and talking and sharing a mother-daughter moment mm-hmm. where there's something there's something positive. And so then the tragedy would have been bigger if we could have only seen it kind of de-evolve from at yeah. least where there's some joy and some maternal moments of reality, we never really get that. So it's just kind of, instead of going downhill, it kind of stays in the valley the whole time. Yeah, like, well, it's the, it's yeah. the dishonesty of it that's laughable then. Yes. You can feel it, you know. Do you know that it's interesting that you say this because Anne Bancroft was supposed to portray, it before Faye Dunaway signed on it, Anne Bancroft was supposed to portray Joan Crawford. And she did end up turning the role down because reading the screenplay, she felt it was too negative, too disingenuous, too disrespectful. It didn't give Joan Crawford any real dimensionality mm. um, as a human being um, and what she might have gone through to, t- to get her to that point where yeah. she's so abusive because she herself was abused. Although I realize this is a biopic really about Christina Crawford, which is what also I think makes it confusing because it's supposed to be about Christina Crawford, but it is more about Joan Crawford because she's the famous character. So we don't, I don't know that we ever really get the inner life. We get the outer life. But I think what people were curious about and what they liked about the book was it's, you know, Christina Crawford is writing down her thoughts, her ideas about what her childhood, about what her upbringing was like. Yeah. We, Get, we don't really get that sense from the movie. It never really goes deeper. 
which is why, you know, thank you for bringing that up because if you're talking about a movie that addresses a real life person like Elizabeth Short versus a real life person like Joan Crawford, I'd rather that people say I'm confused, right? I'd rather, I'd rather people say that than that they say that didn't make me feel anything or I didn't get anything from that or I, I, you know, it's yeah. all special or, you know, because you want to go deep. You see, this is why I wouldn't take those layers away, even if it causes confusion. So you go like your, your film asks questions, but like what what film does what question is Mommy Dearest asking? It's not. It's just telling you this horrible thing happened. It's basically saying it's basically over and over for almost two hours. Yeah, saying like mother was a Hollywood movie star, and that's the story. That's it. You're right. That doesn't make a to say these horrible it's not things. Complex, is it? Yeah. And it's not a compelling story. These horrible things happened to me. Yeah. So it's not. It's not the real life story that people are laughing at. They're laughing at how that material was handled, how and rightly so. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Point where actually, I guess Joan Crawford, in a rare interview, you can find it on YouTube. There's like a rare interview where she talks about it. But most of the time, the rule was, you don't talk to me about mommy dearest. That was that became. I like didn't a, know she was still alive when the film was out. When she, oh yeah, when she, when Faith, when when that film came out and people start, because you know it was supposed to be like a serious biopic. Yeah. And she actually thought, based on her experience filming it, because she didn't know what they were going to edit in or edit out, she she really thought she might be nominated and or win an Academy Award for this movie. Mm. And then it came out. And then there were the responses to it, and she was totally humiliated by it because mm. that obviously was not what she was going for. And like the same thing happened. Ugh, oh my god, we could go for hours. But like one, one last point. Like um, the same thing this happened is with Girls. I'm loving this conversation, and yeah. I never would have made that connection. What you were talking about from Showgirls to Mommy Dear films that become like camp. It camp. was that documentary, yeah, and like it's. I see what's happened with Showgirls as well, but if that happened now, there's no way that it would kill that woman's career. Can't remember her name, the actress. It's Elizabeth something, isn't it? Elizabeth, well. uh, her name is, yeah, Elizabeth, um, oh God, yeah, the curly hair, the long Yeah, hair. I'll find it, I'll find it. I think she was in that show Saved by the Bell, and this was like- Elizabeth Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah. and this, yeah, this killed her career. There's no way it would kill her career, like, now, in this climate. People would be like, a silly man gave you a rubbish script and you were 23 or something and you did what he told you. Yeah. Because it was like millions of dollars into this film. Of course you did what he told you, even if you thought it was stupid. Um, why should that affect your career? Like, I, I, that's horrible. Again, like, I find it hard to laugh at it because it's horrible what happened to her. It is really awful to think that the, yeah, the industry, um, now it's just, now the, those risks aren't even necessarily taken, so you won't see that. What'll happen is who you cast becomes less relevant than the franchise. It's all about franchise now. Mm. Um, although, you know, casting still can play a role, but very minimally compared to in the past. The way they looked at it was this was her first big movie role. Uh, outside of the television show Saved by the Bell, and it obviously lost a lot of money, and 
the studio decided they weren't going to take another chance and the audiences would remember that. And it really is very sad if you think about it. It's it, You're right, it's, it's, it's patently unfair. It's patently unfair. Um, but the, that was a, that was largely the way the system uh, functioned for a long time. Uh, very unforgiving. And in fact, I remember going to, in 2014, I went to uh, what's uh, the IF, uh, IFTA, the, Amer uh, the Independent Film and Television Alliance Conference, where Eli Roth was the keynote speaker. And I got up and asked the question. I said, well, first of all, I'd like to say, Mr. Roth, I'm glad I met you because I, your movies are disgusting. And he said, thank you. And I said, but you're really just a nice Jewish boy. And he goes, like this. And I said, you know, we were actually mentored by the same person. We were both mentored by. And I want to ask you, he said, that, oh, the story behind getting, he said, I just, I heard, I bugged him and bugged him to become an intern for him. I'm like, I bugged him and bugged him to mentor me. And he, I said, but I really want to know what, what, is there something from that experience that you can say you that you took that you you know you came away with that has had an impact on you in making movies? And he said, "Oh, good question, good question." He said, "You couldn't script this better." David said to me when I asked him for advice. This was David Lynch's idea of giving advice for movie making. He said, "Focus on the donut. Don't focus on the hole. The donut is the movie." The whole is all the drama and the negativity and the actors who don't want to rehearse or show up or the members who get agitated or said, but don't pay attention to the whole, pay attention to the donut. And I was like, that is so pure Lynch. It's awesome. So this is someone who actually makes movies and interestingly enough, doesn't say, I thought this was bad. I thought that was bad. His whole attitude is in making movies, the only way you're really going to learn is in making movies. So focus on the donut. Don't focus on the whole. Thank you. I call him the film pope. Thank you, film pope, for blessing us <laughs> with this with this suggestion, with this with this vision. And so with that, I'll say, you know, at the end of the day, uh, he. I remember Eli Roth saying, uh, "Don't do your passion project first because this is not a climate like in the days of David Lynch, where you can make a movie like Eraserhead, which, you know, doesn't make it commercially, which is basically not a commercial success, but you're going to get hired anyway. He said, the climate now is, you know, your first movie has to make it. And if your first movie doesn't make money, forget it, you're done. Okay. I'm going to say something about that. I agree with that. If you're playing with someone else's money, if it's the studio's money, that is true. And if you work with a big studio distributor, that is true. But if you're playing with your own money or someone else's money other than the studio or, or industry capital, like I did with The Scarapist and with Night Rain, which is one of the reasons I did that, and I was able to do that. It, once you get to the point where you're playing with somebody else's money, then you need to concern yourself with that. How much does it make? And that's one of the reasons why Elizabeth well, Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah. Why she got a lot of shade thrown on her for that. Mm. Because, unfortunately, she was starring in a film that cost somebody a lot of money. And it was this, the same thing, sadly, happened with Mia Vardolis. My Big Fat Greek Wedding was such a commercial success. And they and then CBS was going to, was actually in, in, in progress of making My Big Fat Greek Life, which I'm not sure was a great idea to begin with. But she wanted the writer she wanted. She had a vision for it. And at a certain point, they dropped it. 
And on the record, the president of CBS said, life is too short to work with Nia Vardolis. And she has had no other projects since then. It's a very vicious industry. It's a, it can be very brutal, which is why I can see a lot of independent filmmakers like making their own films. Because it can be very it can be a very brutal system. And you hear like, you know, here's here's Patty Jenkins, for example, does I Am the Night, tries to do her own project, which she hasn't done in so long. And it's not it doesn't work very well. And when she's making when she's making uh, Wonder Woman, she listens to what the studio wants. The writer listen. Everybody listens to what the studio basically says. This is what you are going to do. Period. This is the script. These are the special effects. This is your team. This is this is the girl. This is the gal. The doll. They said you will not direct Wonder Woman unless you are willing to direct Gal Gadot, period. She didn't even cast the movie herself. And this is why I say more and more directors in Hollywood are almost becoming like set managers. They're not allowed to write. They're not allowed to produce. They can direct, but they don't get to cast. They don't get to decide who their special effects, they don't even get to decide who their editors are. They have all, the studio does all of it. And the studios were like that to an extent in the golden age, but much more severely now mm. because of the amount of dollars they're putting in. Patty Jenkins might be the director, but it's not her movie. This is the girl. This is our movie. And you're going to do what we tell you to do. Mm. And for that, you're going to get the big paycheck. So for the person who wants the big paycheck, that works. But if you want to make movies or films, that's not your venue because you don't get to do what you want to do. And this is the girl. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. And remember in Mulholland Drive, I'm so glad you brought that up because in Mulholland Drive, you'll remember when at first he defies the, the bosses, what happens to him. Yeah. He, lo he loses his use of his credit cards. He... He can't go home. He can't do anything. And the cowboy comes along. Remember, the cowboy comes along and says, if you're a good boy, you won't see me again. If you're a bad boy, I'll see you twice. You know, and that sort of thing. I mean, it's 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 very, very, you know, mobbish because it is very, very mobbish. You better believe that you're going to do what they tell you to do. Mm. And if you don't, you're out of there. You don't get another chance either. Yeah. That's there's too many people clamoring for uh, up this anthill for them to. So it's people, you know, say to me, well, you know, you're you're just doing independent film. I'm like, no, I'm not just. I'm doing independent film because I want to make movies. I yeah. love movies. Well, absolutely fascinating. Um, I'll we'll have to talk again. <laughs> you are gonna go. Uh, five hours ago. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kept up so late. I just love interesting. this. So isn't it interesting? I mean, you really, it's the only way you can learn it is someone who's on the inside of it, but on the outside of it, because the ones inside of it, they can say some of these things to a point, but they have to be very careful. Yeah. They have to be very careful what, because they're under contract and everything else. Mm. But when you're in it, 
it, you can see it and you're like, hmm, yeah, it is interesting. All I can say is that it would be fun to do a film show at some point and watch movies because I'm doing that with the Criterion Collective and it's only the Criterion Collection that we're handling. That's It's mm -hmm. limited to that. So if you, we wanted to go outside of that, it would have to be, yeah, it would have to be a separate thing. So it's just whatever films you want to pick, you know, it's so fun to, I guess you and I both share that. We have such a passion for film that, you know, it's mm -hmm. just, that's how you know you love it. Cause you just, you can just keep going through it. And yeah, I'll have a think then non-criterion though like you every time i search for a film it's always that c logo appears and i'm like really this one also the, the, have they really published every film i enjoy <laughs> Span the catalog to more recent films because they have a lot of it and you know i don't know if you've noticed this too but so many janice films are criterion collection yeah 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 true, true. i think they they i think they've adopted almost the entire janice catalog like every time yeah. you see Criterion Collection, Janice, Criterion Collection, and there are a lot of great films in the collection, but there are a lot of great films that are not in the collection, too, and yeah. you talked about some of them, you know, so to be continued. Absolutely, <laughs> until catch you next Saturday, then. <laughs> oh, Leo, part three. <laughs> part three. This is part, part three is in this, I think. Uh, we, we melted into part three. <laughs> it's such a pleasure, though. God, I, lo I love me. I love your passion. I love, you know, this is what you make movies and you don't just make movies for it to sit in your living room. You want people to really appreciate it and to enjoy it and to gain to to gain something from it, not necessarily a specific message, maybe more important, uh, an experience. And, yeah. and that they can have that experience and that they can share that experience with you is a really important part of it. And this is just so much fun. We just, we just have too much fun. If there is such a thing, too much fun, what but- What a terrible problem to have. <laughs> I, oh my gosh, well, we do more fun. I prescribe more fun. For sure. Thank you. Until next time, then more fun. Yeah, so lovely uh, talking to you. you. Be well and rest well. I hope you, you. get to keep up on your rest because I kept you. <laughs> Bye for now. Until next time. Bye. You made it. So that was the end of part three of our chat. Uh, I'm quite impressed that you made it this far. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did, and it sounds like we started a whole new podcast at the end there. So stay tuned for more chat from us if, if this is something you like. Um, but, you know, as always, if you uh, want to tell me something about the podcast, if you want to be on it yourself or whatever, uh, you can always send me a message using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you, but that's all for me for this episode. So until next time, bye bye.